Good morning, friends, and welcome to Bible Truth for Living. This is Pastor Tim Reynolds, your host. We want to thank you for tuning in today for another message from God's Word. We're continuing continuing our teaching in the book of Ephesians, titled Heavenly Places. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that would be Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle, in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. By nature means we got that passed down from Adam, and that continues to be our nature today. And I like how verse 4 begins, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together, and here's the title of our teaching, In Heavenly Places in Christ Jesus. Now, in our previous study, we learned that the Holy Spirit leads the Apostle Paul to write about the heavenly places in regards to the New Testament believer. Tonight, or today rather, as we look at chapters 2 and 3, Paul shares seven cardinal truths of Christianity. If we had the time, we could teach an entire session on each individual truth, but for the purposes of this study through the Bible, we're going to look at the highlights of these heavenly places. And the first truth we look at is redemption. And we see the pit of man's ruin in verses 1 through 3. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The first step toward the light of salvation is recognizing your lost, hopeless condition. Now that's hard to do in today's uh, me-centered, self-esteem society. It's almost become as much of a challenge to get someone lost as it is to get them uh, to get saved. Because they think, well, save from what? Everything's pretty good. I'm, I've got uh, two cars, three cars, uh, four or five televisions. I have all kinds of gadgets. I have a boat, a house. I mean, things are pretty good. What am I being saved from? Uh, or I'm not that bad, you know. I'm, I'm okay. I'm not as bad as some other people. And so you have that mindset today, and yet we must realize that we are that bad. We are all spiritually dead in trespasses and sins before we get saved. That means if we were to die in our sins, we would go to hell because that's our spiritual condition. And then we see the pinnacle of man's regeneration in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. He goes on and says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. You see, the spiritually dead person is spiritually resurrected. The word Paul uses here is quickened. It's a a born again to new life. You know, Jesus referred to that in his conversation with Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again, made alive. And that happens the moment that a person gets saved and trusts Christ as their Savior. So you have truth number one uh, of redemption. And then truth number two, we have relationship. By nature, we were outside of the promises of God. Verse 11, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, that would be the Jews, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. No, nothing to do with any of the promises given to Abraham and Israel. And strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, the Old Testament or Old Covenant promises applied only to the Jews. As Gentiles, we were left without hope, no future at all. We were aliens. We were outsiders to these promises. But now we are inside the purposes of God. Verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. That great chasm between God and man created by sin and confirmed by the law is now bridged by the sinless blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Truth number three, reconciliation. We see the hostility of the old commandment has been removed. Listen now to verse 14. For he, Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one, Jew and Gentile now become one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. There's no no division. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that word enmity means the division, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. I like that. You know, it's because of Christ that now both Jew and Gentile have peace with God, and it's all through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, within the temple courtyard, there was a palisade about, oh, three and a half feet high, and it separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. There was a large warning that was posted telling Gentiles that it was death to any who passed uh, that wall of partition. Gentiles could only go so far. But by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he removed the hostility of the law with all of its do's and its don'ts and its commands and saves us by his grace. Now understand this too. God is not reconciled to man. We are reconciled to him through Christ. God doesn't come on our terms. We come on his terms. And his terms are through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. There is no exception. And then we see the harmony of the new creation that is revealed. He goes on in verse 16 and says that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity or division thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off, Gentiles, and to them that were nigh or near, that would be the Jews. 
For through him, Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. You see, the Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ. No replacement of uh, either one, no jealousy, no competition. They are completely unified and one in harmony because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reconciliation has been made. Truth number four, reconstruction. Now, that term has uh, taken a hit uh, in the last couple of years, but I want to explain what I mean by reconstruction here. Listen to verse 19. Now, therefore, because of this, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the house of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly joined or framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The Jewish temple has now been rendered obsolete. Of course, there is no temple now anyway, but that temple is not necessary. Why? Because God is building a new structure that his church which really is the work of the prophets and the apostles as they laid the foundation, and Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We now continue to frame that building, the church, and I'm talking about the the body of Christ as made up of all believers, until it is completed, and he calls the church home in the rapture. I think we're getting close to that day now. And then you have truth number five, and that is Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. Be therefore, I'm sorry, I need to get back to the right chapter. Here it is. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, the mystery of the church, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages, or what we might call dispensations, was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, that same body being the church. See, the church, the body of Christ, was a mystery. That means something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. You could think of it like this, that the church was was concealed in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New Testament. There is no mention of the church in the Old Testament. But now God has revealed it to Paul and has commissioned him to reveal uh, it to us. And then we have the sixth thing, the sixth truth, and that is responsibility. With our great privilege now that we have in Christ comes great responsibility. What is our responsibility? Number one, it is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 7. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints... Is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ? 
Now, Paul is saying that is now my number one mission. It's to preach the gospel. It's to reveal this mystery of the church. And now, that wasn't just for Paul, though. You see, our number one mission as believers, and I think even our mission as individual local churches, our number one mission above everything else is to proclaim the gospel. Now, we do that through all kinds of means and all kinds of ministries as God allows. That can be through a bus ministry, online ministry, radio ministry like this, uh, helping people who are are uh, homeless or uh, without food through a a food pantry or uh, an addictions ministry, jail ministry, missionaries. But see, all of it, the bottom line should always be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're just uh, satisfying a physical need without meeting the spiritual need. So that is our responsibility, to proclaim the gospel. Number two, we have a responsibility to ponder the gospel. Listen now to verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, and that phrase is repeated several times in Ephesians, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does he mean there when he says in verse 10 that me be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God? The responsibility of the church, number one, is to proclaim the gospel. Number two, it's to teach and preach the word of God so that people understand it and know how to apply it to their lives. That's what I'm doing this morning here on the radio. I'm giving you teaching out of the word of God, and it's something that we need all the time. You, you, get, you don't just get a little bit on Sunday morning and that's it. We need a daily dose. Uh, it's kind of like uh, whenever an athlete is, is uh, playing a sport. Uh, and they'll get, let's say you're a, a basketball player. My, my favorite player was Larry Bird growing up. Larry Bird would shoot at least 500 free throws every day. Why would he do that? Well, it was muscle memory so that he didn't have to think about it. It was just continual repetition. Well, that's what it is when we read and study God's word and we pray and we go to church. It's just repetition. It's something that we need all the time, all the time. It becomes muscle memory. It becomes spiritual muscle memory for the believer. And then number seven, we have resources. The truth, number seven, is resources. Verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. But what a wonderful ending that is right there. This is the second of Paul's prayers in this epistle. Wouldn't you just love to hear the Apostle Paul pray for you like this, where he's praying that you're able to comprehend all of these things, the love of Christ, and and, uh, speaking about all the uh, abundant things that God can do for us above we ask or think. What spiritual resources we have access to through prayer. Paul was no better than us when it came to that. We have that same access. Now, 
If these two chapters are not enough to make you appreciate your salvation, I don't know what will. Because chapters 2 and 3 are just uh, are filled with wonderful nuggets of spiritual depth in regard to uh, salvation by grace and sealing by the Holy Spirit and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that brings us now to chapter 4. And as we look at chapter 4, we're going to see that the letter shows us the correlation between the Christian and the church as we once again explore heavenly places. We see the vitality of the body of Christ through the grandeur of the church. Listen to chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness and longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, whom is above all and through all and in you all. The Holy Spirit reveals a clear, comprehensive look at the absolute unity of the true church. You have repeated the word one seven times. We know the number seven represents completion or perfection. Men may split and divide the local church, but the true church, made up of all born-again believers, is indivisible and completely unified because it is the body of Christ. And then we have the gifts of the church in verse verses 7 through 13. Now, this is often misunderstood, and I'm going to cover this not in real depth, but I'm going to read it to you and give you a couple of thoughts. Verse 7, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descendeth uh, is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, let me just tell you real quick. I don't want to get into this real deep. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you know, for three days uh, he was in the grave. What was he doing during that time period? Well, his spirit actually went down to the uh, to what is called Hades and Paradise. Remember, there's a gulf between. If you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, as Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man said, send Lazarus uh, so he could give me a, 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 some water because I'm tormented. And uh, he was told there was a great gulf fixed. All right. So Christ actually went there and he preached. And what happened is he took those who were in Paradise up to the third heaven. All right. So uh, that holding area that was pre-resurrection was moved up to the third heaven, all right? So I don't want to confuse you. I'm not going to go into that anymore, but then it mentions the gifts, all right? Now, these ministry gifts, I believe, are given to uh, every believer. When you get saved, you get at least one spiritual gift, all right? But here, these are gifts specifically to the church, all right? Verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect or complete man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now you have basically three categories here that of 
of uh, uh, gifts that were given to the church. You have apostles and prophets. Now, I believe those were temporary offices that were to guide and ground the infant church, all right? Those faded away. I think actually that John was the last apostle alive, and those offices are no more. They were temporary. And then you have evangelists. What is the responsibility of evangelists? Well, evangelists preach the gospel to lead sinners to Christ and then help to grow the church because they get saved, they get into a local church. That's what an evangelist does. And then you have pastors and teachers. What is their responsibility? Well, that is to instruct the saints of God in spiritual growth and to utilize those who are in the local church to use their gifts to be a blessing in that church. Now, we're not going to get any more into the gifts other than that, but these were given to the church. And notice what it says there in verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. That doesn't mean for them to become sinless or sinlessly perfect. It means to help them to become mature and to grow. And the work of the ministry. If you don't have people uh, using their gifts in the work, you'll not get any work accomplished. And listen, one work is no more important than another. It's just as important. Those folks in the church that are custodians and keep the building clean are just as important as the preacher behind the pulpit or the person playing the piano. Everybody working in harmony and together and for the edifying of the body of Christ, the building up and the encouraging, all right? It's all about unity and working together. And then we have the victory of the believer in Christ. We see the believer in self uh, and self in verse 17. He continues, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation or the lifestyle of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You see, the old nature is depraved and is deceived. It desires sin and is drawn towards sin. And he says here in verse 22, put off that. Put, that's a responsibility. That implies a personal, deliberate responsibility that each believer has to do through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us to do that, to put off what the old nature is driven towards and the flesh and then we're to put on, he says, the new man. Do those things that are right and that are godly. That, And, you know, I think we have to do that on a daily basis. As we get out of bed, put off what the flesh wants to do. Put on what the spirit man uh, says is the right thing to do. And the Holy Spirit helps us in that process. And then we see the believer in Satan, verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither neither give place to the devil. You see, our lack of self-discipline and self-control, whether it's anger or lust or whatever it is, it opens the door for Satan to affect our lives and affect our relationships with others. Just like we would seal up a, a Ziploc bag, you know, so nothing would uh, contaminate, we're to 
seal up and not give any room for the devil to work in any area of our lives. And then we see the believer and sin in verses 28 through 32. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now there's just so much there. I could break each one of those down and, and uh, that would take us six months just to cover those verses. But I'm just going to tell you this for the, the sake of time. Sin debases our conduct. It defiles our conversation. It degrades our character and it dishonors our calling. We're to put all of those things away, be kind and be forgiving because God has done the same thing for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And then we see the believer and salvation in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 5. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. You see, as believers, we are no longer in spiritual darkness. We are to walk. We are to live in spiritual light. Light and darkness cannot coexist. And so our lifestyle should be one of light, not of darkness. And then we have the believer and service in verses 18 through 20. I'm going quickly. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The filling of the Holy Spirit is necessary for the effective service of God. It will determine our worship. It will determine our attitude. Notice there is a comparison here with drunkenness and being Spirit-filled. Watch the comparison. Well, both are delightful deliberate acts of choice, and neither are permanent conditions. Now understand, there's a difference in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Indwelling occurs at salvation and lasts uh, forever, all right? We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Filling of the Spirit, though, is, is a consistent uh, thing that we do as we read our Bible, we go to church, we we listen to a broadcast like this. We're being spirit-filled, but when we get away from that, we begin to run low, kind of like a car uh, runs low on fuel. We need continual, constant filling uh, by the Holy Spirit. And then we see the believer in society. We have marital obligations in uh, chapter 5 and verse 22. And I think I'm going to stop right there. I want to give a little more time to this. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to pick that up right there next week as we look at some marital and moral obligations in chapter 5. And then we will conclude uh, the teaching on Ephesians as we look at chapter 6 as well next week. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you are enjoying this teaching through the Bible. I know I'm going through it rather quickly, but uh, this is not a verse by verse. This is more a summary of the books of the Bible. And And uh, what a rich book the book of Ephesians is. It's actually taking four teachings uh, just to get through this one book. Uh, But I thank you so much for tuning in. I'm looking forward to being with you again next Sunday. And until then, this is Pastor Tim Reynolds saying, may God bless you is my prayer.
You've been listening to the Bible Truth Podcast with your host pastors, Tim and Ron Reynolds. They can be contacted on the Mount Vernon Baptist Temple Facebook page, or you may send Pastor Tim an email to T-I-M-R-E-Y-1 at hotmail.com. Or if you prefer, mail correspondence to Bible Truth Podcast, 817 Woodland Drive, Mount Vernon, Illinois, 62864. Again, that's Bible Truth Podcast, 817 Woodland Drive, Mount Vernon, Illinois, 62864. Thank you for listening.